if one day, 10 years from now, maybe much earlier than that, the, the US government decides that crypto is illegal, basically goes full executive order 6102, which they did a century ago. And when a full on ban of cryptocurrencies and crypto networks, which one of the crypto networks, which community will actually try to resist, will try to actually fight and risk in jail time. Welcome to Good Game, a podcast for crypto insiders with your hosts, Imran and Chow. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is Tornado Cash. Obviously, I've seen Tornado Cash launch probably like a year and a half ago. I thought it was very interesting dynamic that's going to be added to the crypto DeFi ecosystem. What were your first thoughts on Tornado Cash when it was first launched? I've always thought if you want real privacy, you need privacy at the, at the base layer, Yeah, which is the problem that has haunted Bitcoin for many, many years. Mm -hmm. That said, Tornado was a good addition to the ETH ecosystem. However, if you look at the actual usage, the actual usage never really matched the amount of hype and certainly not the token price. Mm -hmm. I've seen some stats that said like at least a third of transactions happening on Terminal Cash was actually by criminals rather than law-abiding people trying to, for instance, send their salary or receive their salary in a private matter. They don't want their employer to know what they do with their own money, like that kind of stuff, which is a completely legitimate use case, right? So anyway, that's like my thought before the ban. What do you think? Obviously, like there has to be a way for people that are interacting on the internet to have a way to anonymize what they do, right? I mean, if you think about VPNs, it essentially does some of that for you. Obviously, there are still some interesting loopholes, but for the average user, a VPN works just fine. And so to me, Tornado Cash was a great addition to the DeFi ecosystem, and I would have expected more usage than where it is now. What doesn't help is where we are in the crypto ecosystem, which is ultimately like you have bridges that are insecure, you have DeFi protocols that haven't thought much about security and you get like economic hackers or black hats that come in and they extract value. And the only way they can legitimately take out the capital is by using these mixer protocols like Tornado Cash. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's partially because where we are and then partially it's because of the protocols that are available for hackers today. But I see this as a moment that's very similar to, if you remember Napster and LimeWire there was this period where everybody was just downloading free music and artists were getting fucked around because they weren't able to like capture the royalties. And so the government came hard on them, right? And then similarly, if you look at like Pirate Bay, same thing, right? Obviously, there's some <laughs> illicit things going on with Pirate Bay, like getting drugs and all that. But overall, it's a black market on the internet. I think similarly, we're going through that again. And we just have to find a way to defend ourselves to make sure that we have neutral protocols that can facilitate whatever interactions that we're looking for. Yeah, this OFAC news is certainly a wake-up call for our industry yeah. because it exposes the most censorable layers of the stack. Yeah. So immediately, within two days after OFAC put a Tornado Cash on the sanction list, number one, the front end went down. Usually it's a combination of an attack on the DNS and mm -hmm. or the server serving the front end getting attacked as well. We also saw the GitHub re uh, repo for Turner Cash getting banned by GitHub. Even if Git as a protocol is a decentralized protocol, GitHub as a front end has a massive power against its users. And the repo got shut down. What else did we see? The Discord group 
was shut down two days after. Anything else? I feel like there's one or two more things. I felt like any software that touched Tornado Cash ultimately was a, a choke point. Yep. A bunch of DeFi protocols, especially the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Also the stablecoin protocols, USDC, DYDX, a bunch of others. They had no choice but to comply. And they banned basically the addresses that interacted with Tornado ETH, right? So basically, this incident exposed four or five highly censorable layers in our stack. I said this a long time ago. The system that we build is only as censorable as its most censorable layer. Yep. And so the entire stack must be decentralized if we want to withstand attacks like this. And by the way, I don't think this particular incident was an example of a malicious attack by the government. I think it's more ignorance. I don't think they know that Terminal Cash is a neutral protocol. Like, they don't understand the nuance behind this. Probably literally thought that Terminal Cash was, like, built by, like, North Koreans and the infamous North Korean hacker group and legitimately built for money laundering, right? So I thought it was mostly a instance of ignorance rather than malicious attack. And so if we want to withstand ignorant attacks like this, we need to decentralize the entire stack. Good point. I mean, RPC nodes... That's right. RPC is the other one that I forgot. Yeah. I forgot if Alchemy also did the same thing. Did it. It's almost as if we're building fintech software. (laughs) And we should be really focusing our time on decentralized protocols where it's truly decentralized. And... There's a personal liability that goes with this, right? So what was most interesting for me was when Pocket Network came out and they said, even though we're decentralized or somewhat decentralized, we are a named team out of Florida. And it turns out, even if you build decentralized software, if you are a founder with a name and the legal jurisdiction, no matter where you live, so as long as it's compliant with America, American laws and the UN and all of that, then there is a chance that you could be extradited, right? And so... Personal liability is actually very important in all of this. The team is actually the weakest layer of the stack. That's right. That's right. And so I guess the question then is, if you are looking to build decentralized software, do you go out as an anon? Or do you figure out a way to become decentralized as soon as possible? I mean, the problem with becoming decentralized as soon as possible is that you have to build a company and you have to build a product, right? There's this whole trilemma effect there, right? And then you have... Anons, which also comes with a lot of issues, right? I mean, if you look at all Anon startups that raised in the past 12 months, I think I'd say about almost half ended up failing. And so the question then becomes, if you're a founder in space and you want to build decentralized software and you're worried about the regulatory overhang that's happening from Tornado Cash, what do you do? It's a very tough question. For starters, Anons will have a much harder time to get funded, right? Mm-hmm. If VCs funding Anon projects is a bull market thing. Yep. It's a symptom of low level of uh, due diligence, right? So what do you do? If you decentralize too quickly, you're not going to be able to move fast enough initially and build a product that people actually want. Like building a product is not easy. Like decision by committee is simply not going to work. You can't decentralize too quickly, too fast. So it's a very tough question. I don't have a good answer. There is a possibility that at some point, What's going to happen might be that really good public non-Anon teams build a centralized teams, centralized public teams build a really good product and they get censored and then they get forked by Anon teams. Yep. That's one possibility. Yeah. I think it's going to be an ongoing thought process here because 
ultimately founders want to build great products, but in parallel to this, they want to make sure that they're not violating the laws where they're personally liable. Yeah. And I think this is going to become a very common theme in the next six months to 12 months, I think. Yeah. I actually ran a thought experiment on Twitter a couple months ago. I've been thinking about this and the tweet went something like this. If one day, 10 years from now, maybe much harder than that, that the US government decides that crypto is, is illegal, basically goes full executive order 6102, which they did a century ago. And when a full-on ban of cryptocurrencies and crypto networks, which one of the crypto networks, which community will actually try to resist, will try to actually fight mm-hmm. and risk in jail time? And my followers' answers were basically in line with what I had in mind, which is that the only community that will fight is Bitcoin. No one else will yep. do. And it's entirely understandable. The personal liability is just way too much. Tough situation. We've talked a lot about this, you and I, about a year and a half ago, and we always imagine what a world would be, what would be the world for crypto, DeFi, three years from now. I felt like we always came to a very similar conclusion, which is there probably would be two worlds, right? You'll have a regulated world, which will serve traditional finance in, let's say, US and Europe and et cetera. And then you'll have the wild, wild west that will continue to run in parallel or shadow DeFi or whatever you want to call it. Does that still hold true today? And do you think where we are with Tornado Cash, it further validated our thesis? I think it's even more true today than it was two years ago. And Tornado Cash certainly validated our thesis. By definition, Ethereum now has a set of blacklisted addresses and a set of non-blacklisted addresses. Like Ethereum basically already forked into two sets of addresses, right? One that's regulated and one that's not. That's right. And we've seen founders building KYC solutions for at least a year now, making some progress, but probably the timing wasn't right yet. But after this turn of cash incident, I think there's going to be even more sense of urgency from major DeFi protocols to go into this regulated versus non-regulated dichotomy. I mean, it's crazy what's happening. I mean, if you look at MakerDAO, one of the ex-general counsels recently posted something on MakerDAO's forum. And it said something like this. He said, I think pegging die to a dollar is a huge risk. I've been saying this for a long time. One. Two is real world assets should not be introduced into MakerDAO's ecosystem because that's another centralizing risk. By the way, this is a criticism I had against MakerDAO since the beginning. (laughs) The only way for the die to differentiate from the incumbent stablecoins like USDC and USDT is censorship resistance. And then at some point they introduce real world assets like these are highly censorable. It relies too much on real world jurisdiction, right? If you rely on laws outside of the blockchain, then that's a centralizing effect. And then number three in that forum, it talked about 20% reliance on USDC, which was very obvious from a very long time. I never knew why they did that, but I understood the pros and cons, right? But now more than ever, they need to figure out their exit plan for this. Yeah. By the way, the motivation to add real world assets, I get it. They basically think of MakerDAO as a landing platform rather mm-hmm. than a credit platform, rather than a stablecoin. They want to let people collateralize any sort of collateral, any sort of assets, including real world assets, to borrow some credit. I get the motivation, but Ethereum simply doesn't have a functioning decentralized alternative to USDC and USDT yet, ever since the DAI added RWAs. There's this notion that in order for us to get real-world adoption, we need to continue pursuing 
crypto native products into the real world, right? Do you think that makes sense? Or do you think that's just another similar to what we just talked about earlier as another centralizing effect that can cause more issues in the long run, the short term? And I'll give you a couple examples, right? So structured loan products, similar to what like MakerDAO is launching, right? You have apps that are looking to get retail users that may not be very familiar with crypto generally. And so like those are, I guess, two interesting examples. And there's so many more that are outside of just those two scopes. And the question then becomes, should we be building crypto native products for crypto native users? Or should we be building crypto native projects to startups project products for real world users that aren't crypto native? I feel like that's a conundrum that we always fall into. I think there is an interesting pattern I've noticed. Whenever I see someone who who's new to crypto or new to DeFi. And by the way, I was new to DeFi in 2020 when DeFi really started. Everyone was new to DeFi, right? When you're new to DeFi, you tend to get fed up with the amount of speculative activities happening in DeFi. And you're like, I want to build real world utilities. I want to build products for the average user. But then if you think a little bit deeper, you realize that at least from a practical point of view, there's two hurdles to this. One is whenever you deal with the real world, whenever you deal with the traditional legal system, there's just so much more friction. Like getting your startup, getting your first product built has so much more friction. It's so much harder to build real world product, quote unquote real world products than building crypto native products, right? But two, more importantly, I think that where crypto is going in the long run, 10 years from now, is these centralized bridges that connect the crypto world to the real world. Yes, they're going to exist. And yes, they're going to be successful. But the vast majority of economic activities are going to move more and more towards the crypto native side. And that's where the opportunity is. That's just the natural state of things. People are going to become more crypto native. And if you're new to crypto as a normal user, the first thing you're going to say is how do I use this thing? And you're going to find your friend who is crypto native and you're going to ask their opinion mm-hmm. on how to do this, how to do this crypto thing. And they're going to tell you how they do things. And the way they do things is crypto native. They're going to ask you to install MetaMask and they're going to ask you to install like Phantom and then they're going to ask you to start using DeFi in a fully self-custodial way. Those crypto native users have a lot of influence because they're perceived as being experts to their friends. I think. In general, the really big opportunities to build crypto native products. Of course, this is case by case. Yeah, I'd agree with that for a couple of reasons. One is product market fit, you're going to find from crypto native users generally, right? You're not going to find product market fit from retail users that has never opened up a wallet or managed your own keys. And I think that is the biggest, I mean, we may switch topics here a bit, but I think that's the biggest reason why we don't have a billion or 100 million users in crypto today is primarily because of UI, UX and private key management. I still think that is the number one hurdle. It's been a number one hurdle since I got into crypto 2013, let's say 2016, when Ethereum started take off, right? And it still hasn't been solved. It hasn't been solved yet. It's crazy. Yeah, I still think it's crazy. I'll say this, the coolest innovation that came out recently was from Coinbase, and I call it the MPC wallet, where you split the keys and you give a partial key to the retail user and the rest is custody with Coinbase. Have you tried the product? I have not, but I should. But I think that is probably the best wallet experience for retail users. No one's going to buy a cold storage wallet. And I mean, people will, some, I don't say everyone will, but the average user, they just want to log in with their username and password or authentication using like Google or something like that and call it a day, right? They don't want to manage their keys. They don't want to get hacked. They don't want to get fished. They just want someone to trust their key and then they get a partial key. And also just if you're a new user, if you want to use a crypto native app and if you have to install MetaMask, that is 
at least five more clicks. These things may not sound like a lot, but five more clicks in order to get started is a lot of friction to get people onboarded. Yep. I think extensions are the worst go-to-market strategy in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, you had a couple that have become very successful. Having extension is an important part of the app distribution game, but it shouldn't be the only app distribution game because downloading extension, I have like, I don't know, 25 extensions for every layer one that's out there, right? I don't think that's feasible. You need to have some extension aggregator or a wallet aggregator that aggregates all of this. The smoke test that people used to talk about, mostly as a joke, is how long does it take for a new user to start using DeFi, for instance, right? If you go on the street and ask a random person who is not crypto native and ask them to take whatever steps that they need to get started with DeFi, how long would it take? And the answer is fucking days. Because first, (laughs) you have to open a Coinbase account, you go through all the KYC, all that stuff, right? And then you take like four days to, or whatever, to get approved. Then you wire money from your bank account to Coinbase. Then you learn how to send crypto from Coinbase to somewhere else. But when you do that, you realize, holy shit, you don't have a MetaMask yet. So you go to Chrome, you search for MetaMask, install it. Then you send crypto asset from Coinbase to your MetaMask. And finally, you're ready to use DeFi. Like this whole process is extremely painful. So check this out. Last bull market, I have a bunch of retail friends. They know I'm in crypto. I don't really talk to them about crypto because I try to keep it separate. Otherwise, you get these random texts about what shit coin to long. It's not something I like doing. But there was an interesting thing that my friend told me. He said, we created a red pill group. It's like a telegram chat of all of my friends. And there's like five of them, right? And they teach each other how to use MetaMask. I mean, they're creating like self-help groups <laughs> so that they could help each other to get them onboarded on MetaMask. And then how to LP on Uniswap or how to buy a shitcoin on Uniswap. I mean, that shouldn't happen to begin with, right? Yeah. This should be so simple and easy that you click a button and you're already interacting with crypto. So that tells you where we are in this long-term user adoption. I want to touch on the Solana phone a little bit. I know this is from a long time ago, but because we were talking about wallets and NPC, I think the Solana phone is probably an alternative to that. That's right. If you haven't heard our last podcast, ultimately what I think the key innovation with Solana phone is the secure enclave that supports private key management. And so the beauty behind this is that for the average user, you could log in once and ultimately you're signed in with every dApp that's out there, right? So your private keys managed directly by your secure enclave, which is on your phone. And ultimately, you can interact like if you're interacting with your apps today on your iPhone, which is really cool. Yeah. The second is getting your app on the App Store is actually a pain in the ass. Luckily, we helped Stepin or Stepin went through our program and they were able to figure out a way to do it through our programming and through some of the key experts that we brought in. But ultimately, it's hard for every founder. And so being able to get listed on the App Store and not having to pay crazy fees that is up to 30% is another important reason why I think Solana Phone's there. Yeah, you're spot on with respect to these two main value propositions of the Solana Phone. With respect to key management, I almost think of the Solana Phone as a hardware wallet with yep. phone capabilities. Yeah. Right? You don't have to go through the 10,000 steps to get started with DeFi or anything else, right? Like all you need to do is to buy a phone, which you can use for a bunch of other purposes. As soon as you get the phone, you're able to get started. During that announcement, I remember, and this kind of touches on, I think, mass adoption, was the XNFT backdoor release from, I think, Armani, who used to work at Solana Labs, left to start this. 
I think it's a really cool moonshot bet that if it was to take off, it'll do really, really well. And it solves a lot of the problems that we talked about, which is ultimately creating uniformity across all apps, right? So using the XNFT standard, you can ultimately create the standardization across all apps that are on all layer ones. And so really, that's like one cool thing about XNFT backdoor. The other is that it's like a super app wallet model, which is very interesting. Today, wallets are really about managing your capital, right? Like, how do you send money? How do you receive money? How do you store money? Which is important, but the product UI UX shouldn't be built around that use case. It should really be built around the use case of how to use an app in crypto. And so it really changes the way you look at a wallet, right? When you look at like traditional wallets, it's about managing capital. Um, XNFT backdoor or backdoor specifically changes that view to how do you use crypto apps today easily? And I think that's a big change fundamentally. So what Backdoor does ultimately is it creates uniformity across all apps, across all layer ones, and creates this one major distribution channel, which is this app, uh, this is Backdoor wallet. And then number two is it manages your private keys, right? So you don't have to worry about storing your keys anywhere. It obfuscates that hurdle. So ultimately, you have this super app looking model, similar to, I don't know, WeChat as an example. I download this once, and then I could download apps within Backdoor. And I don't have to worry if it's on Solana or Ethereum, it just works. And I think that's really cool. I think that could solve a lot of our hurdles today. I'm curious on your thoughts on that. I use WeChat, so I fully appreciate the super app thesis, which is that this is the only app you need. You can just live your entire life in this app, your entire digital life in this app. You don't have to go to any other app. That removes a lot of friction from the user to constantly switch from one app to another to install the and from wallets to, to the app itself. Like this really changes the paradigm. And from the startup's point of view, it's also really massive because yep. if you look at the history of MetaMask, basically for the first three, four years, they did not care about monetization at all. All they did was to build a wallet that people had to use. There, there was no other like really meaningful alternatives. And all they focused on was growth, yep. uh, was acquiring users instead of monetization. And at some point, I can't remember if it was 2020 or 2021, they noticed how much money DeFi was making, especially Uniswap, mm -hmm. right? The trading, the, the decentralized exchanges were doing extremely well. Mm -hmm. And so they basically decentralized exchanges within the browser extension. As a user, you don't have to sign into MetaMask, go to uniswap.org, click on app, then start trading. All you need mm -hmm. to do is to open the browser extension and start mm -hmm. trading within it, right? And so a lot of people really just prefer using that functionality instead of using a third-party decentralized exchange, even if the price is 10, 20 more basis points because MetaMask yep. has to charge a little bit of fee to, to make money. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people prefer that user experience. And so that year, MetaMask made something like nine figures just from That's that insane. one feature. That's it's insane. absolutely insane. <laughs> I think a lot of wallets are realizing this. I think you brought up this point recently about what was it Uniswap and some others who wanted to build their own wallets. Yep. What, what was it? So Uniswap, obviously, is very public on Twitter that Uniswap is was trying to actually acquire Rainbow. Yeah. And the founder of Rainbow ended up pushing back and saying no. And so they're setting out to build out their own wallet. Magic Eden recently didn't announce, but through GitHub, one of the GitHub repositories came up that Magic Eden is also coming up with the wallet. Yeah. Wallet is the epitome of aggregation theory. Like wallet right. is the final line, the, the most direct line of communication between the user and the app. And so they have so much power 
against everything else that's built behind it. All the other apps that are built behind it are subject to the will of the wallet. So it seems like it's inevitable that every wallet is going to become a super app. And that is the end state for crypto. If you look at Uniswap, they have the most liquid decentralized exchange on the planet. They just acquired Genie, which essentially allows you to tap into every NFT market that's out there. You could argue that, not saying this could happen technically, but they could acquire a perp exchange, right? So they have this wallet, which is all of customers' assets that's custodied. And then you could do something like a cross margin that allows you to use that collateral against all of those products and create a very seamless, capital efficient wallet. I'm not saying this could happen, but I feel like that's where it's all going. Yep, possible. Certainly one of my strongest thesis. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the ETH merge. Oh, yeah. What are your thoughts? There's so many thoughts. Let's start with the basics. ETH2 is ultimately a new transition from going from proof of work to proof of stake. Previously, when the ETH2 white paper was written, it was primarily scaling through sharding, which is it would have 64 data shards and shards are ultimately, you could think of them as mini databases. And the reason why it's created that way is so that apps could scale exponentially when they're building, so they don't have to compete for block space. But they transitioned to a different model most recently, which is scaling through rollups. And so now the white paper has rewritten its scaling strategy to include like rollups as a way to primarily scale, which I think is very interesting and probably very smart. And the proof of stake is a prerequisite for more rollups. Is is that right? That's right. So that's kind of like the high level there, right? And so a lot of the community members are very excited about the merge because it ultimately solves the biggest problem in at least in the Ethereum community, which is competing for block space. Because right now, every app that's out there is competing for block space. Obviously, now you have rollups and rollups are making it much easier. But what's ultimately happening, even with rollups, is that you're still competing with block space. (laughs) It's just happening in a much more granular way, right? Versus more generalized on a monolithic layer one. And so that will continue to happen, right? I mean, the more developers you get, you're just going to continue to compete with block space just on different rollups. But I think what's going to end up happening is we're just going to have so many rollups, right? And I think we will scale that way. So talking a little bit about the merge, I think about a week ago, the Ethereum Foundation announced that the merge is confirmed for September 15th. And people, there's a small community that thinks that it's not going to happen. They think there's a 4% chance that it will fail. And which is priced by the staked ETH versus a discount to ETH. That's right. So they're like right. shorting futures quarterlies. It's priced by the backwardation of futures That's right. against. Because the trade is if you long the ETH spot right now and short the ETH future, then after the merge, you're going to get ETH proof of stake and ETH proof of work. That's right. Right. And so there's so much demand for this trade that the futures is now trading at a discount to ETH spot around 4% or something like that. So that's how they got the number of 4% probability. That's right. And so there's a community that think they're not, I would say, necessarily rooting for it, but they're challenging people's bull biases, which I think should be, it should be, right? Because if we've learned from our mistakes with all the other blow ups that happened in the past, the best thing that we can all do is have a very neutral state of how things are going to go. So I think that's important. So there is a chance it could fail. And there's nothing wrong with that. It may take another push forward, but it'll happen eventually. So right now, this whole rally up from now to September 15th, or it's from July to September 15th, will be primarily based on the proof of work to proof of stake changeover. What's your prediction on how the market will turn out pre-merge and post-merge? In what sense? Price action. 
Oh, price action. <laughs> up or down? Up. I mean, <laughs> I could be wrong on this, by the way. I'm definitely wrong on this. But even though everyone knows that like, it's publicly known and you could argue efficient market hypothesis thesis or whatever, so that everyone knows. So fundamentally, it's going to go down or whatever. The reverse is going to happen. Yes, no, because I think the argument also is that there's just so much stable coins or dry powder because of the crash that's happened. And so most funds haven't allocated or are starting to allocate now. Is that true? I think everyone is p- positioned for the merge. Every single one of them. Everyone's everyone positioned. I talk to is, is long, is long everyone, to the merge. 100%. Will we have some fake outs? Probably. But if it goes through, I mean, that has to be bullish. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll tell you what I think. Okay. I think it's actually going to go down because it's going to go down until the merge. That makes sense. A few months after the merge, there will be a lot of institutional interest to buy ETH. And I'll uh, expand on, on both. So pre-merge, I think every single person I've talked to thinks that ETH is going to go up until the merge. I think when you have this consensus of a view, you're going to get punished. Yeah. And the reason why I think this consensus view has a good chance to be wrong is because everyone who bought ETH, let's say a month ago, are definitely making generally a lot of return up until now, thought that the rally was because of the ETH merge. In actuality, it's not true. The rally was actually because of the S&P 500 going yep. from like 3,700 to right now, which is 4,200, like almost 10, 15%. It's actually a rally in the traditional markets that is pushing crypto markets up. Obviously, ETH has gone up a lot more than, than Bitcoin because of the merge. But the, directionally, it's really because of the strength in traditional stock markets. And the thing that a lot of people don't understand is it's not the narrative that creates price action. It's price action that creates the narrative. Yeah. If you actually analyze the historical data pre-important events, like whether it's 1559 upgrade or Bitcoin fork or whatever, right? There's nothing that says that the pump needs to happen two months before the scheduled event. Like it could easily be a week before, which is what actually happened with 1559, by the way. Yeah. So why did the price started going up two months before the scheduled event? It's not the narrative. It's the price action. It's the price action that creates the narrative. Because the price went up, people thought, oh, this is because of the merge. So why do I think that the ETH has a good chance to go down from now till the merge? One, because everyone is positioned for the merge. Yeah. And two, I think that dead cap balance in traditional stock markets has gone to a point where it's actually shortable now. I think over the next six to 12 months, S&P is going down. Sounds about right, yeah. Very good chance it's going down. And the rally over the last two months or over the last month or so has been the bear market rally. And it's shortable now. So I think there is a good chance that ETH is going down. So that was the first half of my argument. The second half, why do I think that ETH are going to go up after the merge? It's because ETH has three narratives that institutions absolutely love. And they're going to pile into ETH after they've gain confidence that the merge has worked. And the three narratives are, number one, the most basic one, meaning Ethereum is a tech platform, whereas Bitcoin is a boring digital gold. Institutions, after 10 years of bull market in tech, they've basically rallied around this new narrative of a tech platform. They love that kind of stuff. That's number one. Number two is the yield. In a world where real interest rate is negative, where do you get the yield, right? You get the yield by staking your ETH, right? Basically, after the merge, ETH becomes a yield-generating asset. Now, pedantically, whether or not that's true is a different story, but that is the meme, right? Mm -hmm. 
people believe in, in the meme of, of a yield generating asset. And three, unfortunately, is ESG. Yeah. Proof of work, unfortunately, people don't like that. People don't like the climate impact, which, by the way, is actually really debatable, but I'm not going to get into the debate right now. But proof of stake, again, as a meme, is a lot more climate friendly. So for these three reasons, I think there will be a lot more institutional interest after the merge relative to, let's say, Bitcoin or the rest of crypto market. Yeah, so I would get dumped on. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I think it makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash Fork, if you remember that. And by the way, the short futures long spot trade is not a new trade. Like this trade has been done every single time there was a fork. Like in 2017, this trade was done with a Bitcoin fork. And some exchanges mishandled the distribution of people who put on this trade. A lot of them got fucked by some exchanges. So it will be interesting to see how exchanges handle the fork this time. Well, Barry did it right back in 2017. I mean, I was holding GBTC and they ended up distributing proceeds from Bitcoin cash and cash distribution, which was great. Yeah. But the more difficult question is these derivative exchanges, how are they going to mark their price? That's right. How are they going to settle their futures price? Is it based on the one of the forks? If so, which fork? Or is it based on the sum of the two prices? Yeah. That can really fuck up a lot of those traders. Yeah. I almost feel like they have to stop. They have to have some sort of like expiration date or something. I don't know. Like they got to stop and restart the market again. Yeah. By the way, from a, I don't want a virtual signal, but from a moral point of view, this whole ETH pal stuff is a huge waste of time. It's a huge distraction. All of it. We don't need this stuff. <laughs> Look, I get it. Like the miners need to make money. You know, they've been treated as more or less a second class citizen by the devs for the past two years. With billions of wanna, dollars in revenue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they, they, I mean, they want to create a narrative so they can juice out the final bit of money from the proof of work network. But from a, an industry point of view, like this is a huge distraction. We don't need this stuff. Just give people ETH proof of stake and be done with it. So no, I guess like... No, no pout stuff. I guess let's push this further. There's narrative where ETC could become the main proof of work chain now for all the miners that want to move over, right? There's a narrative behind that. There's also a narrative of taking a, the legacy ETH1 and continuing to fork and creating the community that's behind that and hoping that developers will stay back, right? What do you think is going to end up happening? I, I mean, I think what's going to end up happening is similar to like all the other forks, right? <laughs> Which is they'll just fork into irrelevance. But yeah, I'm curious, how do you think I mean, this is going to play I, out? I think if proof of work fork will be more irrelevant than ETC in the long run because it's absolutely unnecessary. Back in the day, when the DAO hack happened in 2016, which led to the fork of Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, there was a real community of people who believed in immutability of (laughs) Ethereum Classic. Ethereum Classic is the immutable chain. Ethereum, (laughs) as we know it today, is the chain that reversed the change. You want to hear a funny story? (laughs) Yeah. So when that happened, I remember when the DAO hack happened, because I had money in the DAO and Vitalik, I remember it was the morning I woke up and Vitalik sent out like in caps lock, get your money out of the DAO now or something. And so I started freaking out and I pulled my money out, whatever sold. I didn't stake. And Barry came out and he said, we need to fork or the forked ETH is going to become the now immutable chain. And for some reason, I thought Barry was signal back then. I mean, Barry's still a signal. (laughs) Barry's signal, institutional signal, right? But I mean, even his signal is very interesting now, but let's just say back then. And so I ended up longing (laughs) Ethereum Classic because of the whole immutable 
thesis. How long did it take you to switch back to Eve? A couple months. Like, I mean, I learned pretty quickly. Oh, okay. It's not bad. Uh, no. But even for that few months, I ended up longing <laughs> Ethereum Classic. And the whole immutable thesis makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was just a funny story. The way I handled it, if I remember correctly, I didn't touch either forks. I just didn't know what was going to happen. And eventually in 2017, I sold the BTC fork. Probably the right move. The best thing to do is just don't touch your shit. Just let it go. Yeah, just don't touch your shit. Just let it go. And I think I just saw a tweet yesterday of some Ethereum whale that bought $1.6 million in the Ethereum ICO that just started to move their wallet around and had like $300 million, right? Like six years later, yeah. five years later. Yeah. If you have crypto, just don't touch it. I mean, if it's shit coin, it's probably going to go down. Just keep it in like high quality blue chip assets. Come back five years yeah. from now. End of story. I'll just finish that point about if how yeah. is going to become more irrelevant than ETC. The short explanation is that ETC had a real community of people who believed in that immutability. And ETHPAL yeah. is absolutely unnecessary. Yeah. Even the hardware that miners are using, they can be repurposed to, to something else, right? Like for machine learning or mining some other GPU mineable shitcoins or whatever, right? Like the ETHPAL will probably become more like Bitcoin gold or something, Bitcoin diamond. Like oh my it's, God, it's you said diamond? <laughs> Bitcoin diamond. <laughs> Like back in the day, there were like 10 different uh, Bitcoin forks. But, but Bitcoin are extremely unnecessary Bitcoin forks. But Bitcoin Gold was the biggest example. And Bitcoin Gold is probably trading still in the top 200 or something. I don't get it, I had man. to guess. Yeah. So ETHPAL is probably going to be like that. Extremely irrelevant, but trading at a ridiculously high valuation. I mean, it's crazy how many of the forks are still very liquid <laughs> I mean, from Bitcoin. And then I guess like there's this whole market cyclical issues with proof of work, right? Which is, let's look at Bitcoin as an example, right? When miners are profitable and there's this just positive cyclical action, right? So let's say we're in a, a bull market, miners are profitable, people that are holding Bitcoiners, they're profitable and everyone is very happy. But obviously in a bear market, it's a complete reverse effect, right? So the most unprofitable miners end up selling their equipment and liquidating and calling it a day where the more powerful miners are gonna continue to hold power and double down. I feel like this has to either become very centralizing at a certain point or it's just going to turn out to be very bad in the long run. So I guess I'm curious on what do you think is the long-term effects of proof of work and proof of stake? I feel like proof of stake, long-term, it's very easily manageable. You just got to hold 32 ETH, you stake it, and you're contributing to the security of Ethereum too, right? Whereas with proof of work, you got to have billions of dollars. You got to have very cheap energy, and it's probably need to get cheaper based on what's happening to geopolitical issues with gas and all of that today. For miners, it's going to become very political, and it's going to become very hard for them to offer cheap equipment, purchase cheap equipment, and continue to operate in the space to contribute to the security for Bitcoin. So I guess this is going to probably be addressed someday. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think the Bitcoin community is ever going to think about going and transitioning off? Imran, I don't want to get into the, the proof of work versus proof of stake. Yeah, we shouldn't today. get into that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share one interesting insight that I saw on Twitter. I think the insight was, it went something like this. In proof of work, or uh, by the way, this touches on the tornado cash. Yeah, event. okay. This is so, perfect. When there's a transaction that the miner or the staker does not want to include because they, they want to be OFAC compliant, what happens? The proof of work miner, they can't just not include the transaction and still be okay. I mean, the, the network might, might say, okay, we're going to fork. We're not going to attest to this transaction that's missing, but the miner is still okay. But in proof of stake, if you don't include a transaction and the stakers, the rest of the network disagrees with you, you're going to get slashed. Yeah. It's actually a violation of the network rules. 
So I don't know how stakers are going to react, are going to act in a world where some transactions cannot be included because of the OFAC sanctions, right? So this is a really interesting scenario to think about. Yeah, we'll see where the Bitcoin community is a couple years from now because it seems like everyone's left and a lot of thought leaders that were there that was pushing the narrative, um, yeah. they aren't there. But again, going back to that example, Bitcoin doesn't do much, right? Yeah. As a network, it's a store of value. But a lot of people think of that as a disadvantage of Bitcoin. In actuality, it's it might be a real advantage. The, the simplicity of Bitcoin might be an advantage because it does not depend on other stuff like Eternal Cash or DeFi, like all these things that the government may not like. It's a hedge against Ethereum and all of the innovation that's happening. Yeah. I just think if you're a long-term holder and you need to store your wealth in an uncensorable network, crypto asset, you want to hold both. You yeah. want to hold Bitcoin and Ethereum. They're just too different from each other. Yeah, that makes sense. It's been good chatting, Chow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Good Game. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.